0: POP Health Podcast is a public service of 24-hour home care. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of POP Health Podcast. This is Gavin Ward, host of POP Health Podcast. In today's episode, I had the opportunity to sit down with David Lubarsky. David is the CEO of UC Davis Health. Now, some of you may be wondering, UC Davis Health? Where is that? Well, it's actually in the greater Sacramento area in Northern California. And David had the exact same question when he was reached out to by a recruiter while he was leading a health system out in Florida. So David went on that jaunt out to California and he's now been serving there for two years. UC Davis Health was actually in the news recently. And some of you may be like, oh yeah, was that the organization that helped serve that COVID patient? The answer is yes. So the very first community spread case of COVID-19 was treated at UC Davis Health. And David shares about that story, lessons learned, as well as some other information on UC Davis, including how it was able to create one of the very first drugs to treat Ebola, which now can also be used in the treatment of COVID-19. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Feel free to check us out and see other episodes on YouTube or hear us on pophealthpodcast.com, Apple Music, Spotify, and Stitcher as well. Thanks everybody, enjoy the show. So David, share with us something about you that might surprise the audience, Uh, maybe something outside of the workplace.
1: Well, I don't know if it's going to surprise people because so many physicians are musicians, Um, but I used to be a classically trained pianist, uh, failed in my tryout uh, to play one summer with the New York Philharmonic, and decided to go to a combined pre-med medical school program because I just wasn't a good enough pianist. (laughs) Uh, Do you still play today? Or. I do. I still have, uh, my parents were nice enough uh, to uh, help fund a Steinway when I graduated from medical school. Yeah, and I still have that. And I studied actually all the way until I was in my thirties. And yep. then my academic career sort of took up all my time.
0: Yeah. So is the Steinway like completely protected? I know you like, you can't even like, I've, I've been by one before. It's like, don't touch, don't touch.
1: <laughs> no. no, it's meant to be played. And, uh, and one of the most fun times I ever had was when, uh, as I was graduating uh, medical school and then uh, and then doing my residency at NYU, the giant Steinway Gallery is on Fifty Seventh uh, Street in New York, okay. where I was doing my residency, and I would go there every day, and I would play two hours a day, trying out every single piano that they had in stock before I picked the one that I currently own.
0: Wow, that is great. So it's so at home. Is it uncovered?
1: Med? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. It's, it's it's out there ready to be played. I don't sit down more than once a week anymore, but, you know, at least it's there. Yeah, well, that's
0: great. So you mentioned med school, uh, but that wasn't your original plan. Maybe give us a background on your childhood and where you grew up. Sure. Well, um,
1: spent my early years growing up across the street from Yankee Stadium, going uh, to sleep to the Sounds of the ball game, playing little league in the shadows of the, what is now a parking lot, but used to be the shadows of the stadium on a on a ball field, um, and uh, and then in the suburbs, uh, and uh, had a pretty really charmed life, uh, and um, was very lucky. Was very lucky. Had tremendous support from my family and uh, my best friend's grandfather was my family physician
0: and the uh, inspiration for me becoming a physician. Okay. Awesome. So you grew up in New York. I, I'm trying to catch the New York accent. I don't know if it's there. Do you, do you have it? Uh, only on rare, certain words that, you know, are
1: ingrained, but pretty much, you no. Know, I I went to undergraduate in medical school at Washington University in St. Louis, and it was a pretty bland dialect out in the middle of the country, and I sort of lost my New York accent.
0: Okay, that makes sense. So you go to school, do your undergrad out there in St. Louis, and I know uh, just with a little bit of your background, you spent a lot of your time in the last couple, I guess, yeah, last couple of decades in Florida. How did you end up getting all the way down to Florida?
1: Um, I like the warm weather, <laughs> and um, again, little known fact. So I don't know if you know what Raynaud's disease is, but uh, it actually causes your your hands to kind of get very, very cold um, in, in slightly cold weather and, and vasoconstrict. And, and so I sort of had that, and I was, didn't know that, and I realized that I would be much better off. I blame that for why I didn't make the piano tryout, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Not true, but, you know, it's, it's, it would be convenient. But uh, so I ended up going to Duke, actually, Um, for uh, 14 years and uh, becoming a tenured professor there before heading all the way down to Miami. But I really enjoyed the Southeast tremendously. I I liked the weather and the humidity didn't bother me.
0: Okay, so you've done New York, Missouri, uh, East Coast, Southeast. And then what inspired the move to come out West?
1: Well, you know, sometimes in a trajectory in a career, we make a decision that... Um, to find the best opportunity, you may have to look outside of your own backyard. And um, that's the decision that I made, actually, that as my uh, youngest child was graduating from high school, um, I decided that I needed to actually do something that would be truly meaningful in terms of making the world a better place. And I had done as much as I was going to do at the University of Miami uh loved my career there um but it was time for uh, a different environment and uh so I actually a headhunter called me up and said they knew of me and that this was the perfect job for someone like me and I was like okay I'll take a look
0: that's the way it was interesting okay because UC Davis is you know for folks that are far away it's you know, more not in the necessarily the bigger cities uh that the West Coast is right?
1: well, if I may, so when the headhunter did call me up and they said, i have got this great job at UC Davis for you, you know, that we want you to apply for, and I said to them, Well, that's nice. I don't even know where Davis is. Yeah. And and then they said, Don't worry, the healthcare system's actually in Sacramento. Yeah. Now I had memorized all the capitals right of the united states uh, of america back when i was like second or third grade right because that's what you did back then and i knew that sacramento was the capital of california but i could have never even put my finger on it on a map i'd been to california 30 times but only to the coastal cities
0: right right yeah i mean i grew up in california and not until i mean i'm i just turned 40 but i think in my 30s is when i realized oh Davis is in uh, in Sacramento. I actually played an ultimate frisbee tournament uh, at the university at UC Davis as a kid, but I didn't even realize that the you know the health portion of UC Davis is really based in Sacramento. So you go to Sacramento. Why was it the perfect job for you? Um, the reason it was a perfect job is that the
1: organization decided that they were gonna eliminate the silos and the barriers between our healthcare delivery arm, which was primarily our hospital, and the academic uh, entity, the School of Medicine and its great research and educational enterprise, which was the School of Medicine and the School of Nursing. And while they worked together and they were on the same campus, they really didn't act as a single unified entity doing everything as if there was truly only one entity and so the idea of integrating the clinics and the hospital the schools and the research um well that's actually what kind of what i was doing in miami i was chief uh, systems integration officer but this was writ large and it was with a uh top 50 organization from stem to stern top 50 kids hospital top 50 adult hospital top 50 medical school top 50 graduate nursing school i was like a wow all of these parts And yet they are not greater yet than the sum of the parts because, well, I hadn't really heard of UC Davis when I was in Miami. So I took that as a great challenge to bring the world, the information, about how great UC Davis really was both and, and even the, the and, and also to forge ties and build bridges um, and, and make the causeway between Sacramento and Davis a real bridge for research and educational
0: enterprise and, uh, and again just a great opportunity to build something important for the world. Awesome. So was there anything in was there anybody you had to convince with you to take the journey with you or did you come out solo? Yeah.
1: Um, I, uh, well, I failed sort of in my uh, attempt to do that. Um, and Ended up getting uh, divorced, uh, actually. It was part of the move. Um, Not entirely related to that, but uh, it was just, it was a time for something different. Um, And uh, I'm still on great terms with my ex-wife, but she still lives in Miami. And my other kids, they're all all in school or out in the job
0: world living where they live. Okay, got it. So before we get into what you're doing at UC Davis, uh, I have to ask, You've been in different parts of the country. Um, I don't. Are you in the sports at all? Um, I am. Who? Where, where do your loyalties lie? You mentioned Yankee Stadium, so
1: yeah, diehard Yankees fan from when I was, you know, zero, right? And I used to be able to. I had a very good memory back when I was a little kid, and I literally could tell you every statistic of every single player on the Yankees without exception, right? No matter, right? And then uh, and then moving along, uh, when I got to Duke, I became a real uh, Duke basketball fan. Um, uh, yeah, so that still sticks with me. But now I'm in Sacramento. I live right near the Kings stadiums and I have become a real Kings fan. Um, <laughs> it's not as easy as being a Duke basketball fan, but it's, it's a lot of fun. <laughs>
0: I hear that. Uh, I was in Sacramento, uh, I am saying a few months ago, Uh, we had uh, my day job, we had our, you know, annual meeting up in Sacramento at the hotel, uh, right on campus of the stadium. I forget what the name of the hotel is. Um, And uh, the former mayor, Kevin Johnson was a guest speaker. So we got to meet him. But I know what you mean about uh, it might be more challenging and tough years. Uh, Duke usually has a lot of good years. Sacramento yeah <laughs> well you know
1: what there's uh the thing is that when the kings win it's something to celebrate
0: <laughs> yeah. it's not routine; it's something out of the ordinary um cool so you get to uc davis and you, you kind of gave an overview of all the different silos maybe just briefly this might be a little bit of a recap but can you tell the audience about uc davis health what is that what is uc davis health
1: all right, So UC Davis Health is the combination of all the things we do basically on the Sacramento campus plus our basic science divisions that live in Davis actually. So um, we have a 625 bed uh, level one trauma center hospital that most people know about. We have 70 different clinic locations around the region. Um, we are a uh, partner in many FQHCs that is uh, underserved uh, community clinics around the entire city um, and uh, and that all put together is sort of the health delivery system and then there's our physicians. We have a thousand physicians, we have a thousand physician trainees. We have a thousand students in training before they become uh, physicians in training, um, and so all told, we have a little over fourteen thousand people, uh, a little more than that, that currently
0: work for UC Davis Health, uh, delivering our education, research, and clinical enterprise. That's great. And friendly reminder, folks, Sacramento area,
1: Sacramento, right? And a three and a half billion dollar a year budget. It's a big. It's a big
0: organization. So you've been there since 2018, and one of the things that attracted you was the opportunity to to integrate everything. How's that going so far? It is going
1: better than I could have possibly hoped for. And by putting ourselves together, by by becoming a single entity with a a single strategy, with a single execution arm, with joint leadership decision-making across all the different entities that I've discussed... Um, we've managed to have a growth trajectory that's maybe among the best in the United States of America. We've grown 1% a month since I arrived. So we've grown 24% in 24 months. Okay. And that's just because there were all of these opportunities that if we could all just sort of work together and pull the wagon in the same direction, became really easy to realize. And so actually the, uh, you know, again, kudos to uh, Chancellor May, uh, my boss, who, you know, actually created my role, Mm -hmm. the idea of there being a single uh, academic physician leader for the entire enterprise that didn't exist uh, prior to my hire and uh, his vision for how this should work hopefully is meeting his expectations. I know that we're doing a lot more collaboration with the undergraduate campus in terms of both education and research now as well, which again, will just simply elevate the reputation of our
0: organization.
1: Yeah, and and serve people better, all right? That's always the thing, patience and the, the, the the future health of the
0: world. Yeah, no, absolutely. So speaking of health and the world, Uh, We're recording this in the summer of 2020, obviously COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, You recently published an article uh, about the first six months of what you've learned. Um, Can you tell us briefly, like one thing that's in that article that people may not know about is UC Davis took on the very first case of uh, COVID-19 community spread. And you talked about putting UC Davis on the map when you came to UC Davis. And obviously this put, Davis on the map. Tell us about that experience.
1: All right. Well, so um, I was hoping we would never see a community spread case, of course, like everybody. Um, and um, what we ran into was very fascinating um, from day one, uh, the level of sort of discoordination um, present at the federal level um, as soon as we got, we had seen one COVID-19 patient previously uh, from the Diamond Princess. And so we sort of knew what it looked like. And when this patient came in from the community, um, after a little bit, we said, meaning within an hour or two, we realized, wow, this looks like COVID-19, but they can't have COVID-19 because we traced everything that we can. They don't have any of the criteria. And so we, um, you know we tried to get the person tested For COVID 19, we could not get them tested because the testing algorithms said, well, if you don't have any of these risk factors, you can't have it. And we're like, it meant that they could never have tested a community acquired spread. That was the way the system worked. It was crazy. And we actually had to go toe to toe with people who didn't want to do the testing and eventually got the patient tested and, um, the rest sort of history. Um, we learned a ton around exposure and personal protective equipment and how to best communicate with our staff and our patients in order to make them feel safe. And boy, we learned that in a heartbeat.
0: Yeah, no, I bet. Um, so a few of the follow-up questions on that. One thing you referenced in your article was strategic testing. Can you explain what that means?
1: Sure. Um, And first of all, it'd be great if we could all just get testing the way we get a pregnancy test, right? Go to the drugstore, pick something up, no in five minutes, right? Um, But we don't have that. And we don't have total universal and ready, equitable access to testing yet. And so we have to use testing where it will actually most likely influence the trajectory of the pandemic, And so that means we have to pick and choose. As a matter of fact, um, uh, California came out with its tiered testing strategy, um, which is very similar to actually what I proposed in another article about uh, two and a half, three months ago. Um, And the whole idea here is if you are likely to be someone who is going to contract COVID-19 because of your exposures, or that you are at risk of spreading it to many people because of your public facing job, so therefore you need to be tested if there's any suspicion at all. That's really gotta be the focus. And plus, there's a integral link between the availability of PPE and the diagnosis of COVID-19. as we, when we started out and it was so hard to get testing, we would have 30 or 40 people in the hospital. We would be burning lots of PPE on every single patient because we didn't have ready. Uh, uh, easily accessible tests by doing testing of hospital admissions you immediately know if you need to uh, continue that level of quarantine and uh, careful care uh, to protect yourself versus treating them like a regular hospital patient all very important for the safety of the staff the safety of other patients and to conserve PPE for those times when we need it when someone does have COVID-19
0: yeah that's great great response great details so with COVID, of course, a lot of transition. Most of the audience will know the transition of telehealth. Uh, you meant you talked about telehealth in your article. What was the transition like for your system? So
1: when I first got to UC Davis, one of the things I wanted to do was to really promote building a virtual hospital and really promoting telehealth. And I, and I set out to do this, and I actually invested a fair amount of UC Davis Health resources in building up that capability before COVID came along but it was a trial and a struggle. And my goal for last year was just to get 1% of the patient's outpatient visits onto a virtual platform. And, And although I did all sorts of things to try and promote that, it actually took two things. One was the fact that Patients were scared to come to us and we weren't all that anxious to have patients show up in our waiting room either. So all all of a sudden patients and physicians and nurses were all on the same page. And then we added the fact that the federal government finally saw fit to follow California's footsteps and make telehealth actually reimbursable for Medicare, which meant that Okay, funding and self-interest all came together, and we went in three weeks from less than 1% to 50% video visits. It's
0: amazing. It was amazing. So the, because one of the things I've asked guests in the past is the adoption of telehealth. Even if it's, you can generate a sustainable business, will the patients be willing to accept telehealth? And it sounds like you were able to accomplish both very quickly. Are you still getting a good amount of resistance on the patient side? Yeah, it's it's evened out. So
1: um, it went to 50% of a reduced number. A lot of people self-selected themselves out early in the COVID. Now that everybody is back and our our clinics are are running full tilt, we're still running about 15 to 20% virtual visits. As it turns out that for many patients, it's economical. They don't have to take their kid out of school. They don't have to take a day off from work. They don't have to spend $30 on gasoline to get to us they don't spend because we draw people from all over the area and so if we can, can safely and completely deliver care into a patient's living room instead of making them come to our waiting room wow it's a win-win-win for everyone
0: yeah that i agreed now you mentioned medicare the federal government came on board what about the other clients or payers of uc davis the uh, private insurance companies medi-cal is there reimbursement there as well or is that still something you're working through
1: yeah, no, uh, just earlier, I guess about a year ago, um, the state legislature made it mandatory to have parity payments for telehealth. And so that actually was prescient and it was, it paved the way for us to really do the
0: right thing. Oh, that's great. Awesome. So COVID fatigue, um, you know, doing podcasts. One of the things for me is I didn't want every episode to be about COVID, um, but it's relevant right it's the reality of what we what we deal with and while this episode isn't specific about covid we wanted to touch base because you're an expert on it so can you tell us a little bit about covid fatigue and and what that might mean for your staff but also for patients
1: right well so i'm an unwilling expert as we all are these days right and but i do try and read as much as humanly possible so that as i help to steer the organization i am really doing it with some intimate knowledge as an academic physician. Um, And I'm tired of reading about it. And I'm sure everybody is tired of hearing about it. But the problem is that you have to have perseverance right now. You have to have resilience. You have to say, this could be with us for a year or two. Because even if we get a vaccine to get it out to 200 million people to create the herd immunity that we need to, it's not going to happen overnight, no matter what pre-investment the federal government makes. And so along those lines, having psychological support from your loved ones, that as we talk about social distancing, that's the wrong word. Physical distancing, social connections is what will help us get through the crisis. Um, a knowledge that your workplace is safe and concerned with your safety. And so no, our frontline workers, I hope, know that nothing other than the patient's health, nothing, and is more important than their health and their safety um, as they come and put themselves uh, on the front lines of of care and put themselves at risk. Um, I think that helps, but even then it it adds tremendous stress and there's tremendous burnout. And uh, when I first got here, we appointed uh, one of the first uh, chief wellness officers, um, direct, who was, job is about creating uh support services for frontline healthcare workers and uh he, he is a psychiatrist dr peter Yelloly's, has been instrumental in uh, along with our psychiatry chair dr helen kells in creating programs to be incredibly supportive of our frontline healthcare workers to prevent that burnout and and the stress there's a lot of stress because you're exposed, you're going home to your loved ones, maybe your kids, maybe your grandma, should I see them?
0: I mean, who? it's tiring, it's very yeah. tiring. So one thing I see out there in the media, uh, sometimes prominent people is them saying, oh, this COVID thing's not a big deal, it's overblown. Is there any like short and succinct response that you think could compel them to reconsider? <laughs> hmm. I'm, trying yeah, to I'm, not allowed, I'm not allowed to use curse
1: words, right? <laughs> <laughs> but um, you know, all I, would, I would only say this, is that anybody who says that should come to my intensive care unit today, and they will see, sadly, more patients than we'd like to see struggling to catch a breath, to try and make it through, or to talk to some of the people who maybe they're not critically ill, but they have lingering symptoms for weeks on end after uh, the supposed recovery from this virus. The numbers are not made up. The deaths are not fictitious. The success of masking and physical distancing are known. And anybody who says it differently is living in the state of denial, not in the state of California.
0: Yeah, no, well said. Uh... So you mentioned earlier that your clinics are open. Fifteen to twenty percent of the visits are still being conducted via telehealth, which is good. Um, What about elective surgeries? Now that we're, you know, some people are calling it the second wave. Some people are calling it still part of the first wave. It's getting bad. It's bad. Are elective surgeries full board uh, happening right now? Well, you know, I think unfortunately that word elective
1: um, is probably the wrong word. Yeah. Uh, The only elective. Work that I know about in healthcare is cosmetic work. Okay, you know, or some minor thing like, yeah, you know, my you know my knee's a little tweaky, and maybe I want to get an arthroscope to see. But honestly, and, and orthopedists don't get angry at me. I'm not sure that's elective either. Uh-huh. Um, at UC at UC Davis, we basically you know we are a tertiary quaternary center. We take care of people who have cancer, who have trauma, um, and uh, who need brain surgery. Right well if you have brain cancer it's not elective. You may be able to move it from Monday to Tuesday. But it's not elective. A mammography is not elective. You may not need to get it this month. You can't wait 2 years till covid is gone and go without your mammogram. You can't wait 2 years when you're 2 years old not to get your vaccinations that will protect you if you go back to school. These are not elective things and so we have to do everything humanly possible to change that dialogue because people have begun to think that way oh i have an option to come in but yeah. really your ongoing health is not an option and, and 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 one of the most startling facts um that people don't know is that uh, you know we saw a marked increase in the number of deaths um early in the pandemic in march and april and may but only 70 percent of that of those excess deaths were due to COVID. The other 30% were due to the fact that people were not seeking care for their strokes and their heart attacks, and they suffered fatal events at home. And we can't allow that to continue. And we're just gonna create another pandemic when people stop getting their measles vaccines. So we need to keep healthcare open but we need to do it in a smart way. We need to fix the supply chain. We need some federal direction to plug the holes in the supply chain. So PPE is available to all the frontline workers and the patients who visit them so they can get that needed care.
0: Yeah, well said, well said. So you mentioned federal government support. What about the community? How can, you know, and let me backtrack. When COVID first broke out, you know, you heard stories of like free, you know, food dropped off for first responders and for healthcare workers. If, if people have resources, money, time, what's the best way they can help UC Davis?
1: Well, first of all, I want to thank the
0: hundreds of donors
1: and food shops who did exactly what you talk about. And the young adults who came out and chalk painted our sidewalk. And it really makes a difference to our healthcare workers that people recognize, everybody from environmental services up through the exec suite and all the doctors and nurses and respiratory therapists in between. We really appreciate knowing that the public knows that we are putting ourselves at risk and we are doing this for the sake of our community. And so just knowing that and just keeping up, honestly, the donations aren't about the money. It's really about that sense that we're in this together. And the one thing the community can really do is to speak up. When people start saying things like masks aren't necessary, masks are necessary so that we can continue to do our job a little bit less than we're doing it. Stop getting together with 20 of your best friends in your backyard. That's how you can best support UC Davis. Get a flu vaccine. You say, why? Why should I get a flu vaccine? What's that got to do with COVID? Well, because come the winter, right, we usually see a ton of hospital admissions related to the flu. We're not going to have room this year get your flu vaccine. That's the best way to make us take better and allow us to take better care of, of you, our community.
0: Yeah, no, great advice. And I agree with uh, I agree with you, David, and listeners. Um, I have a close family member, I won't name this person, but they, they believed in the myths of how you can get sick and catch the flu from the flu vaccine and things like that. And there's no science really behind that. Um, so just agree with you, David. Um, one last question. You mentioned there's not going to be room if if the flu if a flu pandemic hits on top of the coronavirus pandemic. So we, I've heard stories about uh, some county hospitals receiving military support. Um, may I ask you if UC Davis got full? What happens next? Do you do we deny patients? Do we have to reroute? If there's other available, does the military come in? Do you mind me asking about that? No, I, I
1: think that we, um, we've been very closely allied with the California Hospital Association, the California Medical Association, policy and planning for the California Health and Human Services Department, and close alliance with the California Department of Public Health and the Office of Emergency Services for the state. We are, all the health systems are, I that this morning we had a pho- such a phone call. We are constantly doing surge planning At both the city, county, state levels, Um, we are constantly level setting and figuring out how we might load balance if any one area got overwhelmed. And if it really does get to that, we have search plans. Um, The state actually mandates that. Uh, UC Davis plays its part. Um, We're the largest ICU care provider in the region. And so we are able to, we have plans to flex up from 84 adult ICU beds to 200 if we have to. Wow. So um, we're ready and we're ready to serve the community. We don't want to get there though, because the care that we're gonna be delivering, it really won't be in our ICUs. It'll be makeshift and it'll be converted spaces and it will, we don't wanna get there. We wanna flatten the curve again, keep it to a dull roar, wear our masks, be careful with whom we associate and be able to go about our lives for the next year while we look for a vaccine. That's the answer to the whole problem. But I see far too many people who are deniers and that will get us in trouble.
0: Yeah, no, good points, good reminders, David, and hopefully our audience is on board. And please, please share with your friends and family. Uh, David, as we end the show today, uh, how can folks keep up to what you and UC Davis are up to?
1: um honestly so i have a twitter account um and uh we'll let that flash on the screen maybe <laughs> uh, uh, and uh and and that's a, that's one good way and then of of course uh, our uh, website at uh, uc davis constantly has updates about the coronavirus and how to keep yourself safe and uh we'll uh that's that's probably the best way
0: So David, uh, back to the coronavirus, COVID-19, I know UC Davis has a, a research wing or department, I don't know what you'd call that, and you can respond here in a second, but tell us about any work you guys are doing on therapeutics and or vaccine.
1: Right. So uh, UC Davis is involved in, I think, 39 different studies right now around COVID-19. Everything from studying the communities that are underserved, how to create a more equitable uh, diagnostic and treatment plan, to actually uh, being part of studies for remdesivir and uh, vaccine trials. We're working at a very basic level in developing our own vaccine. Um, a lot of people don't. Again, people don't know a lot about UC Davis. It turns out, but next to the NIH itself, we do the second most animal studies in the United States. Oh, wow! We have a very robust system in order to test uh, therapeutics and vaccines at the animal level before they get into humans. And uh a fact, remdesivir, the one drug we know that works. It was initially studied at the UC Davis School of Veterinary Medicine as a potential Ebola cure. Um, Yeah, so um, again, we have a long track record of dealing with pandemics and we will employ all of our uh, clinical and basic and uh, animal model research uh,
0: to that end uh, until we see this disease vanquished. Quick question for you. The Department of Veterinary Medicine, is that under UC Davis Health?
1: um no that is part of uc davis the university um they are the number one veterinary uh school of medicine in the world and we join with them in something called one health where you know the idea of the health of our planet and meaning in our school of Agricultural and environmental sciences is part of this and school of veterinary medicine school of human medicine um we're all joined together doing some very large projects about how we keep our planet and all of its inhabitants and living
0: things healthy awesome david very cool yeah i, I never considered veterinary medicine being under health and when you mentioned that, i'm like wait i better double check
1: But <laughs> you be well uh, again if uh, if you've got a love, beloved pet or a large animal that's the place to go in the united states of america
0: yeah no i bet um, cool, David. Well, I think we got some good content here and I uh, really want to say uh, it's a privilege and I really appreciate the response on LinkedIn and your willingness to participate on short notice. Thanks everyone for tuning in to another episode of Pop Health Podcast. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode. And if you have and want to check out other episodes, visit us at pophealthpodcast.com, iTunes Apple Music, Spotify, Stitcher, and now YouTube as well. Take care.